John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 118.JE2106, certificate number 52760, the Bhopal disaster. Another accident on this scale seems unlikely, but India does not have enough skilled workers and inspectors to enforce safety regulations. So industrial safety will largely be left up to the conscience of Western companies here. John Cochran, NBC News, New Delhi. You know, you and I have been trying to make the show more relevant to Gen Z listeners. It's it's all we talk about. Mm-hmm. Offline, you mean? Yeah. On the show, we keep appealing only to boomers and Gen Xers. But in person, we're just like, why are we are we irrelevant? How do we connect? Let's with take the a kids? long look in the mirror, and then we bandy about trying to do Pokemon shows and realize, oh, that's not even Gen Z. They don't even they don't remember Pokemon. Pokemon's thirty years old. <laughs> what the heck? What are they? And then, you know, neither of us know how to get on TikTok, so we're lost. We could do a show about TikTok, but it's just us trying to sign up. <laughs> hey, Ken, look at this. Look at this. Hold on. Uh, I need to text my kids. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think what we settle on is that the way to connect with Gen Z kids and, and younger millennials is to do climate catastrophe shows because that's it's all, all they, they care know. about. It's yeah. all they know. That's right. That's real life to them. Uh, also, this predicate. This is all predicated on the idea that they want to listen to podcasts by middle-aged men. Oh, do do young people not even listen to podcasts? Is this actually like a? I would assume like a AARP right. format. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> this is like sixty minutes being like now. What topics will get the kids to watch sixty minutes? It, none of them because they have not seen broadcast TV in their lives. Yeah, I read a thing the other day where uh, they tore into the Super Bowl. College professors in trying to figure out how to connect with, you know, incoming freshmen are realizing that their relationship to uh, computers is, you know, that this is the digital native generation, but they're digital natives within an ecosystem of apps. Oh, I saw this. Right. And so they don't know how to save files to their, they don't know where the file system is Yeah, because in the cloud, the stuff's just there and the desktop, it's just there. It's not the, only that they don't know where it is, but they don't know that it exists. Right. They don't. They don't understand. I the don't concept. understand the question. What yeah. do you mean a file system? Yeah, Say, it's the same for Google Foo. Like they're not as good at formulating search queries as the cohort like ten years ahead of them, because the software got good enough that you know Siri or Alexa will do that for you. Right. 
And, you know, we had to figure out all the workarounds because of dumb applications. As the applications get smarter, the people get dumber. It's perfect yeah. Wally, oh, Wally solution. Yeah, it never occurred to me that there, uh, that the whole digital native thing. It was temporary. Yeah, had a, had, <laughs> it was just based on like a, we're oh. Com- we're coming down from the bell curve of kids knowing computers. Don't worry. <laughs> it makes me feel better about never having introduced my kid to computers, or at least not yet. That's stupid fad. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. Like computers. I'm not gonna get you a I'm not gonna get you a Tamagotchi and I am not gonna show you how to use a computer. I mean, of the two of us, the you know, <clears throat> I'm the one that sits reading a magazine and uses my fingers to try to expand the photograph. I'm like, Oh, stop it. Stop it, you dummy. She'll never do that. She knows the difference between a magazine and a I've seen two-year-olds do that in web videos. I've never seen. Um, oh, do it on. A- I've, I've never. I, no, no, I've seen. I've seen people do it on the on the uh, kids do it on a magazine. Little babies trying to do it on a magazine. But I've never seen a dotty fifty-year-old do it. This is fun. Yeah, I'm like, oh my my reading glasses aren't strong enough to see into that. Fo- I'm just gonna oh, no. zoom. Oh, I can't zoom. Oh God, I need to get my my big uh, coffee table magnifying glass. Do they sell large print New Yorker? <laughs> I'm sure they do. Increasingly, it'll be all they have. At, yeah, I'm going to say at some point it will be the only version of the New Yorker will be in like 18-point font. Large print and easy to read because as we forget all the words we used to know, be like, what does that mean? The Atlantic will go first. You know, like, what do the old people need to know most urgently? The excesses of the trans movement. Mm. And that's, you know, we need to, let's deliver them. Deliver them just the questions we're asking, the alarmist <laughs> questions we're asking in 24-point type. Um, this, is a, this is an eco-disaster, um, this show. This, this is going to be one of the great— This show is often an eco-disaster, but— This show, this room is an eco-disaster. This show is a super fun site. But, um, you know, people love—they've they've written— how many, how many letters have we gotten from people saying, John, would you do more shows where you spend the first half of the show— just describing the chemistry, just like pure chemistry shows. There's so many of those that I now think it's some kind of coordinated yeah. campaign. It's yeah. just, I, I first, you know, when the first thousand came in, I was like, this is a groundswell. Yeah. And now I'm like, wait a second. Something's behind this. 10,000 people want to <laughs> hear more lead, lead in gasoline, uh, <laughs> Thomas Midgley chemistry. Yeah. What would you say are your great chemistry shows? I do remember the Midgley one. Mm-hmm. Uh, oof, Let's uh, see. There's too many to mention. Um I'm always talking about... You did Cold Fusion, which is chemistry adjacent. Yeah. Um, you know, it's hard for me to remember even the shows that we did earlier today. Oh, absolutely. And, and somebody we, asked me yesterday, what? How, my, somebody at the gym was like, how was your weekend? And I just kind of <laughs> stared there dumbly at him. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, if somebody did that in a movie, you'd be like, oh, this is alarming. Let's find out about his trauma. Yeah. But it's just my daily life now. What did I do this weekend? I mean, I can look back at my texts and probably piece it together. Right. What What do you consider the weekend? Like, when does it begin and when does it end? What day is it today? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. I go through that every time anybody talks to me. Where am I? Who are you? It's good that we have a podcast. Do we know each other? Uh, is it? Yeah. Like, we're, <laughs> if you're going to do a definitive reference work for the human species, why shouldn't it come from people who are not... What month is it right now? Uh... January, February cusp. It is, yeah. It's, it's some, As, somewhere. Where, do you know which? Are we over the line? What do you think? What's uh, your, what does your gut tell you? Uh, we were really close to it not very long ago. I think we are in February. Correct. We are, uh, we are recording this on February 1st. Hey, I got there. Just under the line. That's a trick question. It's only been February for like 12 hours. Yeah, but what day of the week is it? <sighs> See, that's easy because 
Like I'm very day of the week dependent still, even though I'm a freelancer. Why? Because my kids are home on Saturday and oh, Sunday. Sure, sure, sure. Wednesday is uh, often omnibus day. Yeah. If I'm in LA, that's often Monday through Wednesday. I go to the gym Tuesday and Thursday. Mindy's got pottery Monday and Wednesday. Oh. It's all, you know, when I was a kid, it was very much like, well, give me a break is on Monday. Silver mm-hmm. Spoons is on Tuesday. It's basically that, but um, without owning an antenna. Over the last 15 years, I've definitely had phases where if you had said what month is it, I would have it would have been harder for me to zoom in on it. I think right now, yeah, I've got I'm I'm more keyed in to like the the seasons and stuff. The seasons, uh-huh. like I'm really I feel a deep kinship with nature. For example, I've noticed that it's cold. Yeah, but sunny. Well, you're not going to be a true kind of um, you know if you're really going for the burned out hippie thing. Mm-hmm. That's really more like what year is it? I, I, if I were going for the burned out hippie thing, I would have taken some, I would have made some different decisions in the mid 1990s. Different drugs. Well, I mean, I think I watched the burned out hippies at the time and said, is this, is this my path? Are you my mother? And And for a time you decided, yes. mm, There was a guy named Treetops that I knew in Spokane. He was a, he was very tall. He, uh, like a he, wrestler. He was a treetops Calhoun. He was a really neat guy. This is back when you could buy weed in a grocery sack and treetops. It wasn't good weed, but it was, you know, you could still get a grocery bag full of weed. Um, you know, ditch weed is what we called it. You and, mean before they started charging eight cents for a bag? Is that what you mean? Uh, no, you know that before, I mean, you big could, quantity. you could always get like really good weed that costs more. What am I picturing? Like a sheaf of kale? Like how can it yeah, how can it possibly right. be the size of a grocery bag? That's the thing, you know. Weed that isn't like cultivated and hydroponically manipulated or grown in concentrated, in, yeah, sun, sunny climes, and uh, particularly weed that grows naturally. Right, it fertilizes the male plant, fertilizes the female plant, and then it produces seeds, and that's terrible. You got to pick all the seeds. So out. this is just in some guy's secret forest, some yeah. secret rainy northwest forest. Treetops always used to find the weed. It was growing next to the road, and you could buy, and you still can roll joints out of it, and it's very mild. You know, it's very chill. You don't get all weird and paranoid. It's like relaxing. Well, you smoke that kind of weed all day. Well, why are you complaining about the burned out hippies then if they had this great relaxing weed? Oh, I wasn't. I oh. just, I, Treetops and I used to have, you know, long, interesting conversations. Fascinating guy. But at one point I was like, when I get older, am I going to be known by a, like a gnome de guerre, like treetops? Is that how I saw myself when I was a kid? And I, and I, and I chose a different course. No one called, no, I, I'm Nick, unnicknameable. They called you double meat or something. Yeah, double meat. Du- extra du- meat? Well, extra, I, can't, I can't remember what it was. Extra meat for a dollar. But that was a totally different group of people. Hippies are not called extra meat for a dollar. No. That's, that's antithetical to their ethos. No, they're not. We're, uh, they're not even omnivores anymore, hippies. I have a, I have a friend, the mountain biking, uh, like, um, like alternative artist friend, who said to me the other day that he was vegan now. And he used to live on Necco wafers. I don't even know. How, Aren't Necco wafers vegan? I, I'm not actually sure how much how much milk solids are in a Necco wafer. I always feel like Necco wafers are made out of horses' hooves. We need to find out. We need to go to the New England Confectionery Company and be like, let's get to the bottom of this. Our tens it's of chalk. thousands of, of, of Gen Z listeners who perked up when I started talking about natural disasters are now thinking, what's a Necco wafer? Well, we have gotten back to chemistry, but, right. it's, but it's the chemistry of Necco wafers. A meteorite <laughs> fell to Earth in Connecticut, 
hundreds of years ago, and they've been mining Necoite out of it Necoite. ever since and giving us these little discs. You can also get Necoite on cruise ships. It's uh, it's actually the gem of the future. I want to get yeah, I want to get it on the ground floor of <laughs> Necoite, the communion wafer of candies. That was a chemistry show, wasn't it? Tanzanite? Yeah, maybe not. Uh, no, it had it was a geology had, show. Yeah, but it had crystallization of rocks. That's all chemistry stuff. I guess so. I guess so. Well, the other thing that uh, Gen Z likes, in addition to uh, environmental catastrophe, is being told what they like by old people. For sure. Well, they're not. You know, they're they're. Every time I say Gen Z, they briefly look up from their phone because they think it's their parents. Our listeners are briefly thinking of their kids and grandkids. That's what happens. <laughs> That's what happens when you say Gen Z. <coughs> oh, Gen Z. No, I'm actually talking to the millennials who are just now old enough to be really contemptuous of the younger generation. Yeah. And so they love me referring to Gen Z because they now are starting to feel superior to somebody and, other than their parents. And some of them may have jobs and workout regimens, which yes. implies podcasting. Thank you. Yes. And they can, some of them can afford cars. That's true. That's where a lot of podcast listening happens. Car, car sharing. Uh, but the the other thing, uh, the other element to this show that I think will appear to our young, uh, I'm sorry, appeal to our younger listeners, in addition to appealing to Gen X and Boomer listeners who over-identify with the youth, you know, that's a demographic too that I think we we're right in the target. Oh yeah, that's that's a hundred percent me annoying my kids yeah. by saying you're so real for that bestie. And yeah. My kids will be like, never, never say that again. Well, that too, and the the um, but the the thing I'm thinking of is. <clears throat> All the Generation X people that realize in their hearts that they've failed utterly to have a moral code, right. just transferring it to the youth like, oh, I'm so proud of the young people. The They'll kid, save us. The kids are all right. Yeah, the kids. My 401k is in good shape. But they're going to save the planet. <laughs> yeah. Yay. <laughs> you know, fave and thumbs up. There was a lot of that a couple of weeks ago when that, did you see the graphic that went around of like in the UK and the US uh, voting trends changing over over time, over lifespan for, and you know, you, you watch the greatest generation get more conservative as they get older. You watch boomers get more conservative, Gen X get more conservative. And then you watch millennials enough just stay flat. Like, They've gotten, they are not, they are not moving an iota because they, unlike us, they do not have a working society. Oh, I see. And they are mean. not getting comfortable. Not like, getting... like there's no trend so far of Gen Z, millennial and Gen Z starting to move into their forties and be like, you know what? I do want lower taxes and smaller government. Right. It does not appear to be happening. And maybe that's because of how the conservative movements have changed in those countries or the different things that were happening when those cohorts hit middle age. You know, it's very different if you hit middle age when Trump's the president than if you hit middle age when Clinton's the president. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you stack them up, the kids are all right. Yeah, the kids are going to save us. Gen X, Gen X is 100% Trumpy now. To a man. Yay. No. Boo. Boo. When people talk about how Gen X is becoming more and more conservative, I just don't get it. All my friends are becoming more and more vegan all the time. More vegan every day. More vegan every day. Or they don't even say vegan. M V E D. I walk by fast food places and they'll all be like, good news. The whatever, you know, the whatever is now plant based. They just say it has plants like plant based whatever. Like good news. The chorizo, whatever at taco time. Has plants? No, and they don't even say vegan. It's like the new the new way to frame it is like, well, I eat plants. We have plants. This, this taco has plants. <laughs> we I have guess, plants. Therefore, I should eat this taco. <laughs> oh, plants! Plant based. You know, plants uh, they crave electrolytes. And where are you going with this? 
Well, uh, <laughs> electrolytes are what plants crave. I'm not sure it needs a second it's thing. Self-evident why <laughs> yeah. I would why I would say this. Uh, so I I feel like uh, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of laying the groundwork about what this show is about. Yeah, we're not we're not hopping around at all. Do I need to get to what the do I need to actually start the show or can we just talk around what the show's about some more? I think we should talk around it. Well, the, my meta take on this is that it was a huge news story when it happened. I'm the right age for this to be a very influential thing that I experienced in real time. You remember it. 100%. <clears throat> you know, headlines in the papers, mm-hmm. big photo spreads in Newsweek. And really just like kind of a this has never happened before. Three Mile Island, Mount St. Helens kind of Gen X catastrophe that we really never think about that much anymore. Am I, am I right that Bhopal's kind of fallen out of the out of the public awareness? Did Union Carbide do such a great job with their little Men in Black memory erasing things? One hundred percent true. At the time, it seemed like not only an unprecedented disaster, man made disaster, but also like a harbinger of of. Uh, uh, Collapse, environmental collapse, uh, corporate malfeasance. This was still, we were, it was, this was still very close to Rust Belt era where it felt very possible that all those old factories weren't just going to rust and collapse into the ground, but they were also going to release yeah, okay. millions of tons of PCBs and fully a third of the country might be a Superfund site. Yeah, right. The groundwater was going to be undrinkably polluted and in this is everywhere. The, this is the subtext of a lot of 80s stuff. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Toxic Avenger. This is all kind of based on this idea that the ground is full of glowing slime that yeah. will kill us all. And it, and it did. It did, and it was full of toxic slime. I mean, I have a, I have a, a subset of possible shows for Omnibus that's just uh, 15 different topics that consist of buried slime. They're all about love canal. Yeah. Love canal. I've been, <laughs> I've, I could write a book about love canal, but I, some, for some reason I've never done a show. Maybe I should just do all 15 of them in a row. A 15 part series. Like this suddenly becomes like a serial type yeah, podcast exactly. about, but it's investigative journalism. Your trip to love canal. Re- return is, to love canal. It's always the same. Some company buries, 1,050 gallon drums full of toxic material next to a river and then sells the property to a housing developer (laughs) and, uh, and through a series of uh, shirtless shirtless kids are swinging into a quarry on a tire swing. And then exactly. And then somehow the, the chemical company was bought by Nabisco and then Nabisco sells it to Volvo. And by the time it all shakes down, nobody's responsible. Uh, but am I right that there hasn't even been like an Aaron Brockovich style movie about Bhopal or? Uh, well, if you lived in India and were connected to like the, mm. the, um, the documentary film culture in India, you would find some I'm films. i here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, there's never been uh, a, uh, like a. A bunch of these big U.S. groundwater lawsuits did become kind of, uh, you know, impassioned movies at the multiplex but i guess that's what happens that's the difference between one of these in the in the industrialized world and one of these in india well and that's that that's the entry point to this story because this is a story that uh, looking at it with a modern overlay and this was even true in the, the 80s it's very easy to see it as a first world uh ignoring the the problems of the second world or the the developing world mm-hmm. um and you know, thousands of deaths in India are a thing that just kind of gets swept. In a, in a boardroom, that's like six deaths of a European. So, eh. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> the um, and this topic was brought to me by uh by a listener who 
was communicating with me that they didn't contribute at the omnibus level uh, that would Ooh. allow them to suggest a show. They got around the Patreon. Or as far as I know, they didn't. But they were talking to me separately and had a question uh, about why it was that we talk so much and think so, mu- so much about Chernobyl, which was contemporaneous with this. Right. Bo- Bhopal happened first. What is it, like 84, 87 or something? Uh, Bo- Bhopal happened in 84. Um, or Chernobyl's later than that. And Chernobyl's in 86. Oh, 86. So, you know, Chernobyl has con- consistently kind of comes around. Uh, Prestige HBO series. Like you say, HBO series, but also we never really forgot about it. Uh, and why is Bhopal effectively invisible, considering it was uh, it was maybe more deadly mm-hmm. Um and the the suggestion, or or you know, the, your, the first thing to jump to is like, oh, well, because it happened in India, and so. Well, that might be true of the media coverage for sure. Well, um, even if it's not, even if you don't think it's that closely related to the root cause. As you say, at the time, there wasn't a bigger media story. It was very, um, it was in a disaster porn kind of way, very photogenic, because uh, because a lot of the deaths were concentrated in children. There were pictures of, you know, f- f- one of the most famous pictures from the, um, from the disaster was of a child's funeral. Um, and that's because, as we'll see, um, the gas was heavier than air and it flowed downhill. And, and it's literally... The shorter you were? The shorter you were. Oh, wow. Um, the, the more of it you breathed in. So, yeah, it couldn't have been a bigger media event at the time. But it, the the ongoing story and the story of the culpability, the responsibility, became very muddled in a way that um, in Chernobyl, as the story unfolded, it became more and more concentrated. Who was responsible? Right. And cinematic. There's... Yeah, exactly. You can you can go by minute to minute. You know what the failures were, um, and also, I mean, the other reasons of course, is that Chernobyl was a global, it was, it, it affected the globe and it was nuclear, which was our real, uh, bugbear. Mm-hmm. And we're all fascinated and fascinated still, you know, when there's a, when there's the possibility of a nuclear catastrophe, because at, by 1986, we'd spent what, 40 years, um, collectively dreaming of a couple generations. That's their, exactly that's that their apocalypse, yeah. you know, um, whereas Bhopal, the the gas cloud had dissipated by the following day, hmm. um, and so it was a very localized catastrophe. But let me let me explain what happened. Uh, in it'll probably only take me a half an hour to explain uh, the difference between how you would make uh, a certain pesticide via one method uh, compared to a similar method of of making a uh, the same pesticide. But just in, by com- combining chemicals in a different order. Let's go really slowly for people who are taking notes. Okay. Um, the, the story does involve the Union Carbide Company, which is an American company that was – Union Carbide was founded in the late 19th century. And they were a, a, a company that effectively kind of invented the petrochemical industry. Thanks, Union Carbide. Yay! Uh, they were also – they made a lot of uh, – a lot of uh, they were early into the uh, 
consumer battery market. So they were the ones that gave us the Energizer and the EverReady batteries. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I think for a while they made Glad trash bags. You know, they were an American company that... Plastics and synthetics and... Yeah, made a bunch of things that were hard to throw away. And that if you burned <laughs> them uh, in, a, in a pit, they would make your eyes water. Was that their slogan? Yeah. Don't burn this stuff unless you want your eyes If we water. make it, don't burn it. Uh, and then, like, like all big American companies, in particular petrochemical companies, they became a global enterprise. Uh, and they started various chemical plants uh, in various places. And, again, you, wanna, you want to um, – if you're telling this story in a series of 5 to 15 tweets, um, it's easy to say, oh, well, they offshored – the manufacture of all these pesticides to the developing world, which they did, but in, but they also were making these pesticides right here in good old U.S. of A. So it's more and it's more <clears throat> a matter of cheap labor than what if if this if this blows up, we'd rather not have it happen in the Tennessee Valley. Well, and this was a time when um, you know uh, pesticides and fertilizers had had made. Uh, incredible gains globally in terms of our ability to grow productive crops and feed millions and billions of people that only a decade before were threatened with starvation. If you remember the, the things we were most worried about in the late 1970s were global famine and uh, millions of people were dying. We haven't done a Norman Borlaug show, have we? No, but we could, but we did do, um, the, uh, a show about Ethiopia and the famine there. But I might have started with a. It might have started was, with Live Aid. Or yeah, something. it I was. We, I think it was. We might have gone from the song to the famine. <laughs> so you know, pesticides were a component of that better living through chemicals era, where uh, I, I I saw something the other day where where um, there was some suggestion that there was now a generational difference in the response to the statement. I believe that technology will help us solve these problems i assume it's did it go up and then down yeah or did I think, it go, has it gone down consistently since 1890 i think uh, i think it's true that older people still say yeah i believe that technology will help us solve this problems but it, it these problems but if you were born after 1990 it's harder to find evidence yeah where's the, where's the most recent time like yeah all the technology is just seems to have just made problems worse right um but Growing up in the 70s and 80s, we saw multiple times that, oh, a new invention solved what seemed to be an intractable We banned risk. chlorofluorocarbons, and it worked. That's right. The hole in the, the ozone layer, which only a year before was the subject of a big feature. It was time's hole of the year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that we were all going to die, or we were going to have to live, walk around with umbrellas, um, to keep the sun from burning us to a crisp. The funny thing now is that's a that's kind of a, uh, a conservative talking point. Like everybody had all this alarmism about, about yeah. the ozone hole. You yeah. never hear about that anymore. So exactly. checkmate, liberals. Checkmate. Yeah, because we actually solved the problem. Technology solves our problem. Or worked on the problem. Now it's been a minute since we've had new omnibus shirts and merch available, John. I am so excited that we have new shirts. Uh, I think futurelings love our shirts. And these shirts are particularly cool. I mean, one thing we have been doing more frequently is offering staff judgments on whether particular 
structure systems, phenomenon objects are or are not compatible with the writings of Karl Marx. And for listeners who are not interested in things that are compatible with Marxism, we also sometimes adjudicate that things are not compatible with Marxism. No matter which of the sociopolitical theories of the 20th century you subscribe to, uh, you'll find something to cheer for on Omnibus. But I don't actually know, is selling t-shirts compatible with Marxism? No. Uh, not compatible with Bolshevism. Does it depend on the shirt? Because here, here's the new limited offer shirts we have available right now. If you go to omnibusproject.com slash store, you'll see that our friends at Mediocrity have two new t-shirts, one of which says compatible with Marxism, and the other says not compatible with Marxism. We're trying out a new thing. I have always felt that uh, t-shirts that had too much ink on them were difficult to wear because, you know, all that ink weighs you down. Because they get all crispy? Yeah, they just kind of blah. So I suggested maybe if we had a smaller uh, little slogan that was just over the left breast. This is more of a sporty uh, yeah. a sporty uh, uh, business casual t-shirt. Right, and then it requires that people say, what does that mean? And then you can wax uh, poetic about how much you love the Omnibus Project. And you can... Uh, display your proclivities or your political right. sensibilities. This is going to give us some polling data. Mm-hmm. We're going to know how many people bought the compatible with Marxism shirt in black versus how many bought the not compatible mark with Marxism shirt in gray. And you can buy both shirts and wear them depending on your mood that day. You can, when you're hanging out with your, your hippie friends, your leftist friends, you can wear compatible with Marxism. And when you're hanging out with your parents, yeah, your parents or your libertarian friends, uh, you can you can uh, wear your not compatible with Marxism. Shirt. And it's true that you get a fifty uh, percent discount on your second shirt if you get them both. I see at mediocrity.com. Nice. nice. So if you nice. want to make your voice heard on the tenets of Marxism and how they relate to T-shirt fashions, mm-hmm. go to omnibusproject.com/store. And start shopping. I'm going to get one of each because I'm going to, I'm going to wear them depending on my mood. The and many I, moods of Tovarish Roderick. That's right. And I'm going to get two for my daughter so that she's going to have to explain to her little friends, her little Montessori friends, she's going to have to reiterate all the different times I've tried to explain Marxism to her. I'm going to get two, but I'm just going to get the not compatible with Marxism one twice because I don't want to get canceled. <laughs> India was was in, uh, a particular place where um, increase. You know, no one can deny that India is a particular place. India is a place, and Omnibus is going to stand on that. Right? We're going on the record uh, I've, to futurelings that are like, "What? India was never a place." I've been saying this for years. Yeah. Nope, it was at least in our time. In fact, a big place. A big, well, a big place, and a lot of people there. A much pop. It will be the biggest. It will be the most populous nation on earth projected in something like a couple decades. Wait, I thought it had already crossed the line. No, China's still vastly more popular than India, but if you look at the curves, they're going to intersect in like 15 years. Oh, I'm so excited for that moment. What will happen on that day? I don't know. I hope I'm in the front row. I hope the the baby that does it, that pulls ahead of China, you know, becomes the next, you know, the... Super baby! Some kind of Gandhi, uh, uh, some kind of new Mahatma that that saves Asia. Oh, I was thinking that the mom would get a million dollars, a million rupee check, 
which is $470. And a few government functionaries are there with balloons. <laughs> Congratulations. You're the 1,000th visitor to the Space Needle. Uh, so Union Carbide uh, built a plant uh, that made pesticides and other uh, industrial chemicals in India, uh, right in the geographic heart of India, in the city of Bhopal, which is... I have to admit, I don't, I'm looking it up. Uh, because of uh, how... Is that where raw materials were? No, I mean, Bhopal is actually like a, like a, it's it's considered one of the greenest cities in India. It's kind of a beautiful, um, high, or like, you know, a, a savanna kind of environment, right. trees, and uh, it's a lovely place. And it's, because it's in the geographic center of India, I think daytime highs uh, throughout the year uh, hover between... 90 and 1,000 degrees. and uh, It's 1,000 with the humidity. And daytime lows are between uh, 900 degrees and 79. It's like Venus. So, yeah, it's very, for me, living here in Seattle, where it's always 59 degrees with a a light mist, it seems hot. I'm pleasantly cold, we say. But so Union Carbide built a a plant there in the late 1960s. And one of the main products it produced was a pesticide um, that they called Seven, but it's spelled S-E-V-I-N. So maybe Sevin? Sevin? Sevin. A lot of other names you could have come up with uh, other than that. Is, is, for, this, is this supposed to connote the seventh of something? Boy, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, I think they just uh, they put a bunch of Scrabble tiles in a bag. And they threw them out on the floor, and they were like, "What? What? What word does that make?" Nizev, Nisiv Seven. Uh, that is a, a, a like a company name or a product name for a chemical called carbaryl, which uh, is a it kills bugs. It kills bugs dead. And the process by which they, here's the chemistry part. Get your pens out. The process by which they make uh, carbaryl at this factory uh, was. It was a it's kind of a three-step project, or a three-step process. Um, they take uh, methalamine and they uh, they combine it with phosgene. Okay. Now the combination of methalamine and phosgene. I already can't tell you anything about either of those two compounds. It produces a compound called MIC. That MIC is just a description of methalamine and phosgene. What happens when you combine MIC with KEY? Well, that's the thing. Then you take the MIC and you mix it. You take the MIC off your letter sweater and you mix it (laughs) with uh, naphthol. And that makes carbaryl. Okay. Now, there's another way to make carbaryl. Are you ready? Is it better or worse? Well, it's better... But it's more expensive to do. Okay. And what uh, what the the better way to do it is you take the phosgene and you mix it with the naphthol first. You don't take the phosgene and you combine it with the methalamine and then then take that MIC and mix it with the naphthol. You take the phosgene, you mix it with the naphthol first, and then combine it with the methalamine. It's just a different order. You skip the MIC phase entirely. No MIC. You drop the MIC, as we say. That's right. In the entertainment. That's, that's right. It's an MIC drop. 
But that costs uh, more money to do. And the although this chemical plant was built in 1969, by 1979, really not that long, when you think about what you hope is the lifespan of a factory or a chemical plant in particular, um, it had not been maintained very well at all. A lot of the systems were sort of rusty and not, um, some of them not even online. And I don't mean contemporary sense of online, but I mean. This factory is not extremely online. Like, I mean, mean like the lights on the control board that indicate whether it's on or off, that even the lights aren't working. But is this, again, maybe this is jumping ahead, the kind of thing where a multinational in a country they know has maybe laxer inspection standards or in a rural area that has laxer inspection standards is, is not doing their, not doing their due diligence. Well, here's the trick. The company is half owned. And by half, I mean slightly less than half. (laughs) It is 49.1% owned by the Indian government. It's a joint venture with the, and Indian capitalists. Because that was the that's the condition. Okay, we'll let you come in and make your stuff here, sell your stuff here, but we want to make sure that our economy benefits. That's right. So and this so this is common. Uh, this company is called Union Carbide India Limited. And um and so the operation of the company actually uh, falls to its Indian owners and its Indian. It's local. It's lo- all the employees are are Indian and and um, and its relationship with the government of India is particularly complex because, of course, the Indian government is also the regulatory agency, the ins- you know presumably the inspection agency. Now, yes, the corporate masters of Union, union Carbide um, in. United States, USA, are, uh, this is an, an era where they are doing as much cost-cutting as they can. They're trying to uh, increase synergies and, uh, and efficiencies by eliminating layers of management and also not supplying people with the manuals because they're expensive to print. And, and much of that savings can get passed along to the shareholders and, crucially, to them. Yay, the shareholders. That's precisely correct. They get they get big bonuses and the shareholders are happy. And who cares if the customers or the employees are happy? Or the that, locals that are killed in a giant gas. Exactly. These are footnotes to them as long as executive bonuses and shareholders are looking solid. That's 100% accurate. And um, uh, all of this I mention only because it all comes into play later, as you can imagine, after the murderous gas leak occurs as people try to figure out who's responsible. What's this compatible with Marxism, they ask? At, uh, at no point is any of this compatible with Marxism, as far as I know. Although later, the efforts to right. you know, help <laughs> the injured and dead are briefly compatible with Marxism. Well, and actually, as a counterexample, maybe it's... Oh, that's right. As a cautionary tale. <laughs> Here is why some version of Marxism, or at least democratic socialism, might useful. Um, So what ends up happening is that the plant is manufacturing within the plant a lot of MIC. And if you recall, MIC is methylamine and phosgene. 
It's a side of, and it doesn't all get used up when you combine it with the uh, whatever the third thing was. Well, combining it with the naphthol, naphthol is the is then the process of making the seven. So or seven. And so they have all this MIC because it's left over or because they just have it's the stuff that hasn't been made into seven yet. Well, it hasn't been made into seven yet, but what we had there in the, in the very early 80s is that there was a sag in demand for pesticides. Ah. And so they had made more MIC than they were currently than they currently needed to be producing uh, all the seven that the world had back ordered. And so the MIC started to um, started to pile up, and it's a and it's a liquid uh, when it's under pressure. And there were three tanks, three very large tanks, um, tanks that held what eighteen thousand gallons, which is sixty eight thousand liters of liquid. Um, liquid MIC, mm-hmm. three underground tanks. And the tanks were pressurized with nitrogen gas uh, for a couple of reasons. The nitrogen, the pressurization then helped pump out the MIC when you needed it. Um, and also the nitrogen gas kind of was inert within the tanks and it created an environment that kept moisture out, that kept impurities out. So the nitrogen gas was a, you know, was a kind of an important component in the storage of MIC. But also as a side effect, it puts the toxic stuff under pressure. But it, it puts it under pressure, but, it, you know, it, under, um, under the best of circumstances or under normal circumstances, that pressure would be a couple of PSI. Just enough to... On the outside of a tank, who yeah, cares? Just enough to, to move the MIC out when you right. need it. Um, but lack of maintenance at the plant, uh, started to, well, it produced a series of each one, maybe a minor, like all of these accidents, right? A cascade of minor issues. There's no smoking gun. There's like 20 smoking firecrackers. Yeah. What's something that smokes a little bit? A smoke bomb. Yes, that famous saying, yes. the smoking smoke bomb. It's not a smoking gun, it's a smoking smoke bomb, or a smoking pipe, or a smoking cigarette. Stressed out mom, that's something that smokes a little a bit. Sm- a smoking, uh, a smoking, uh, what is that stuff that you burn? Uh, incense. Incense. A smoking incense. Smoking jostick. Uh, so the first thing that you kind of look back and say, where did this all start? Well, in October of 84... It started before this, but we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. In October of 84, one of the three tanks uh, lost its pressurization. Not catastrophically. Did they know? They did. They noticed right away, and they said, well, um, we, need to, we need to figure out a way to empty out tank E610 because it's no longer, you know, uh, some rust has gotten into, the, into some pipes or some valves, it can no longer keep uh, its pressure, so we need to um, we need to stop putting MIC in there. And very shortly after there, they said after that they said we're going to stop making MIC for a little bit here while we resolve some of these uh, maintenance problems. Um, there was a second problem, which was corrosion in a different pipe 
that led to the gas flare. And if you think about a, any kind of chemical plant or gas plant, one of the things that makes it look like Mordor is there's it's always burning on top. Yeah, there's always a big pipe that's burning what what are the off gases of whatever the chemical process is, and that burning, you know, takes care of toxic venting. You hope, and it also makes it look like. Anton First's designs from the first Batman movie. Exactly. Like. And you and it and it reminds Look at people this Gotham like hellscape we live in. It reminds people that live nearby the plant that they are poor. <laughs> because if you live anywhere close to a flare, you know that you are that's not good poor. for house prices. So they shut down the gas flare. They stopped making MIC, but they had these three and one of the tanks was not um, able to hold pressure, but they had two other tanks. That were in good uh, repair, repair, or at least good enough repair. And so for uh, for a month, they were trying to do some uh, some maintenance on the plant. They didn't get E six one zero back up to standard, but they decided in November that they were going to resume production of the carburel or seven. Uh, but they didn't bring the flare back on. So they they started producing carbaryl again, uh, partly to get rid of some of this MIC they had. In tank E610, they had about 42 tons of MIC just kind of sitting there. It's just sitting there, the tank's offline. Just like blorp, blorp, blorp in this tank. But they've got two other tanks. They're cranking out the carbaryl. In early December... So in addition to the flare being off, there were a couple of other safety systems that uh, just coincidentally were also not functioning. One of them was there had originally in the plant been a refrigeration system that was designed to cool the MIC because you don't want it getting too hot either. You'd have a hot mic incident. You would. You'd have hot mic at that point. Um, and if you went to the bathroom, everybody on the soundstage could hear. Uh, the, res- uh, the refrigeration system had been disconnected a couple of years prior in order to repair it, and the, re- rep- the repairing never happened, and they actually pumped all the Freon out, and it was just dead in the water. Uh, inoperative f- cooling system. And you'd think that there was a cooling system for a reason. Something is a little less safe now if for years there's no... Freon in your cooling. Yeah, in particular in, a, in an environment where daytime highs are 140 degrees uh, or uh, 30, 35 degrees in uh, Celsius terms for our international listeners. Our Commonwealth friends. Um, so, and as I said, the flare tower was disconnected, but also the, the, uh, the pipe to the flare to- tower was a pretty small diameter pipe. It was meant to flare off just sort of leaky gas. Uh, it was not. It didn't have. Did not have the capacity to actually flare off a, a major gas incident. Mm-hmm. So even if it had been on, it would not have been very useful. And then there are uh, within the plant there were gas scrubbers systems that would kind of send poison gas through a cleaning system. Before it gets vented. Yeah. And those were also suffering from some maintenance issues and had been put into standby mode. 
seems like an organizational problem if there are multiple safety systems that have been offline for years. Yes. Yes. Agreed. And I think everyone that looked back on this event uh, concurs with your assessment. Organizational problems. So on the night of December 2nd, um, the staff was puttering around doing their uh, usual work. There was a team of people that were using pressurized water to unclog a pipe uh, that was across the compound from tank E610. It was about, what, uh, 400 feet away. This is some first domino. Well, that will... Unless, unless you don't count the other six dominoes you already talked about. Yeah, that will be, that will be something that becomes contentious uh, at a later time. Um, but they're, uh, in the middle of the night, people in the, the, uh, the control room start to notice that the pressure within tank 610 starts to increase from a kind of nominal pressure. Uh, it increases to 10 PSI. And two senior staff in the control room check the readouts and assume what anyone would. Faulty readout. Exactly. It's a malfunction of some kind, not something to get that worked up about. This always happens in movies. It does. It always seems like you should assume the thing's actually broken instead of being like, eh, beep, I bet the landing beep, gear actually works. Beep, beep. Uh, here, just hit it a couple of times. That always does that. Uh, about a half hour later, the workers that are out in the the compound that are trying to unclog the the clogged hose with the with the high pressure water start to notice some effects of gas on themselves. Oh, health effects! And they say, "Beep beep beep! Hey, something's going on. That sounds like seems like there's a leak somewhere." And they are instructed to um, to check out. You know, see if they can find a leak. They run around, they do find a small gas leak associated with tank 610. Is this the one that was? This is a bad, this is the bad the offline one? Yeah. Uh, at about quarter till 12, they discover the leak, but crucially, tea time is at 12.15 a.m. See, you're saying don't blame colonialism, but they stopped to have tea. They stopped to have tea. That's right. The tea tray led to Bhopal. So the, although tea is not, I mean, tea is a, is a, uh, it's an Indian invention. Well, it's a delicious drink from, from Central Asia. It's look, not some look, I'm not UK thing. But, but stopping work to have it in the middle mm. of the afternoon, that might be a UK thing. Oh, did the, where did it come from originally? Stopping work in the middle of the afternoon or in this case at 1230 in the morning? I feel like in India, they would just, <laughs> in, you know, industriously, you know, have a swig while they, while they're still working on their, um computer programs or whatever. We're in the UK. There's like famous stories of George Lucas pulling out his hair because he's way behind on the first Star Wars movie and they're about to get a shot and it's like, nope, sorry, the union right. lads are, uh, are leaving the stage now. It's uh, it's tea o'clock. It's tea o'clock. Yeah. Well, tea o'clock here in the middle of the night uh, lasts until 12.30, 12.45. Wait, and there's a tea break after midnight? Yeah. <laughs> okay. After midnight, they're going to okay. let it all hang out. And... I hope it's decaf. So the, uh, well, no, this is the night shift. They're used to working. They need you know. their tea. So the senior folks there on site say, well, we'll, we'll address the leak 
after T. Uh, and the problem with that is by the time tea break is over, the pressure in the tank has spiked from 10 PSI to 40 PSI, which is a lot. And people start running around. We got to get, uh, we got to get this under control. It is kind of understood that what happened was some water got into the tank and mixing with the the MIC, it created an exothermic chemical reaction. Starts to give off heat. You're, and you know, water is heavier than MIC. Water would sink to the bottom. Uh, and the temperature in the MIC tank starts to power up. Now, later investigations indicated that people in the control room attempted to open the valve at the bottom of this tank and take out some, well, presumably what would be some of the water in the tank. Uh, They take out a ton of fluid, but it is not enough to slow down the exothermic reaction. Um, By 1250, this is just all happening now in a matter of a few minutes, uh, by 1250, an alarm sounds. And the alarm, when it was initially built, was built, there were, you know, two halves of the alarm. One sounded within the plant, and one was a general alarm that sounded, uh, pointed out to the neighborhoods around the plant. I guess that's what you want. Yeah, but but uh, uh, just a couple of years ago, at the time, back in 1982, they had decoupled the two alarms because they didn't want the normal alarms that were sounding all the time within the plant that were saying, this pipe is rusty, stop, there's gas in the lunchroom, to uh, annoy and over-concern the neighbors. So they can turn the the alarms off and on separately, but for whatever reason, the exterior one, nobody thinks to turn it on in this case? No, in fact, both alarms started to sound at 1250, but the exterior one was immediately turned off. No, 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 no. It's, don't, it's nighttime. Don't worry, people. Yeah, everyone is fast asleep. Uh, by one o'clock in the morning, the police have been called. Uh, and wait, the po- wait, wait. So they know it's bad enough they need to call the police, but they're still turning off the alarm. Someone called the police. Seems like the left hand might not know what the right hand's doing here. But the police then, rather than like uh, jump into their police mobiles and arrive on the scene, uh, the police call the plant a few times uh, over the course of the next half hour to hour. Um, just to say, how's it going? Just saying like, what's going on over there? And they keep getting messages from people in the plant that everything's fine. Don't worry. We're not exactly sure what happened, but between 1 AM and 2 AM, um, the, the, uh, the tank of MIC basically, uh, released 40 tons of poisonous, effectively cyanide gas. So nothing ever bursts. It's just a slow seeping thing from this small leak. Well, no. What uh, the pressure got so big that the top of the tank cracked. Oh, okay. And a huge toxic cloud of this stuff just, I mean, it just starts billowing out at some just point. Just billowing out, spraying out uh, all of the st- all of the staff at the plant. They all turn and run up. Um upwind so they kind of run uphill basically uh away from 
the gas cloud, which heads downhill. But downhill is toward civilization. Downhill is toward the town. Um, and within an hour, oh, and so then they turn on the alarm. Um, at 2.15, they finally hit the switch on the alarm. Uh, the gas had already completely uh, exploded out of the tank. So 2.15, they sound the alarm, and everybody in the neighborhood opens their doors and windows to find out what's going on and step out into this tidal wave of poisonous gas. If the alarm had sounded immediately and the word had gotten out, shelter in place, close your windows and doors, uh, the damage would have been like that would have done it exponentially less, right? I mean, there still would have been a lot of dead livestock and and there would have been people affected by it. But running out into the street was to Worst run thing you can do. Yeah, run into a uh, death cloud. And the the gas, you know, it it creates coughing and burning and then vomiting and ultimately you die of effectively suffocation. You're just not getting oxygen. Yeah, it's a, it's it's terrible, bad, bad stuff. Uh, so this all happens so fast and in the middle of the night, and the Indian government now is in a kind of uh, what would you say a conflicted situation because they are the ones who are tasked with both the um, the immediate disaster relief. Also, they appoint themselves the exclusive investigators into the incident. They also are the the advocates for the victims. Yeah. And probably running the cleanup. Running the cleanup, and also, of course, the owners of the plane. the owners of the plane. They're Mr. Burns. They are. They are Mr. Burns. Um, the official death toll in the immediate aftermath is 2,259 people die within, within hours. Jeez. It's basically most of a nine 11. Yeah. Um, by 1990, you know, by, by five years later, that death toll is 3,787 people. So a nine 11 long, that's long-term health effects. People are still dying years later from, well, long-term health effects, people are still dying. Oh, wow. um, over 560,000 people were affected by the gas leak. Bhopal is a big city. It's over a million and a half people. And th- those are people whose lives might have been years shorter. Yeah. Wow. There are 4,000 people who suffered from severe in- uh, injuries. The, head, the CEO of American uh, Union Carbide flies immediately to India. Um, but he arrives in India and the Indian government says, this is not where you belong. They put him in, uh, they put him in under house arrest and told him, you need to get, get on the first flight back out of India. And he does. And I think a couple of Indian government ministers follow. Um, is this because, you know, part of the government's going to be looking for a scapegoat and it's going to be somebody else in the government or, well, the, the Indian government, like I say, is, um, is investigating the crime, potentially c- covering up the 
right. crime investigating itself like a US, like a US itself. police department and uh, but they recognize that at least at this point like the last thing they want is the american ceo walking around uh, doing i don't know what i don't know what he intended to happen his name was uh, warren anderson and he, mm, he'll show up again in this story uh, in, in a moment. Um, so the Indian government passes a law called the Bhopal Gas Leak Act, uh, which effectively enshrines their role as the sole advocates for the victims of the gas leak. What does that mean? Like in the court system, maybe there would have been other remedies in India, Cla- well, class action suits and so forth, and they're trying to head this off at the pass. Well, and they're then what they're doing is they're saying no one else can investigate on behalf of you know no no one else can send investigative teams to look at uh, the the plant or the the people that interview the the people on site. They're going to control all access to the information. Yeah. And the the story, and I think the story that we all that we saw at the time, and the story that that absolutely has ample uh, evidence to support, is that Union Carbide did not maintain their facility. They turned off crucial systems. Other systems were I lost count. Three or four systems are affected here. Yeah, other systems are rusting. People aren't paying attention. There's uh, there's a, inopportune tea time. They shouldn't have probably been making um, seven via this method anyway. Um, oh, that's right. The other way is safer. It doesn't produce the byproduct. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have giant tanks, giant underground tanks of MIC um, if you were making it the, whatever, the the way that was preferred by the Bayer company, which also, and I, by that I mean the German aspirin company, not Bear Stearns. Uh, they Fairstrands makes very little pesticide. They're also making this pesticide, but via a different method. And that's a safer way, but maybe this was cheaper. Cheap. It's just the way that they were doing it. Um, when Bayer is your, you know, your human rights, uh, what's the word? Paragon. That's right. Something's you, gone wrong. You know you've done something wrong. But almost immediately what happens is there is, uh, there's a lot of, jurisdictional wrangling where is this uh ultimately enormous lawsuit going to be adjudicated and union carbide america naturally obviously claims that this is an indian company run by indian people uh, employed by indian people and our heart breaks, but we only own 49.1%. Well, they actually own 50 point. Oh, it's the other way around. Yeah, 50.1%, well, not that, 40 on 9.9. Well, that got a little weaker then, didn't it? Yeah. But, you know, that that's just an investment. You know, they're just, uh, they're not, yeah. they're not managing the plant. They're just collecting the profit. Um, and, and, and again, <laughs> implications of colonialism and uh, developing world issues. Well, so, and this is what happens in U.S. District Court. The courts determine, well, no, this is an, this is an Indian matter, and it belongs in Indian courts, and it begins a you know a multi-decade wrangling to try to get this case heard in U.S. courts, and and 
hold Union Carbide accountable. It's the idea that India's going to, nobody's getting any justice, survivors aren't going to get money. Well, it certainly does create a problem when India is the, both the perpetrator, the victim, and the advocate, yeah. and, the, and the defendant. Um, Union Carbide offers India $350 million in 1986 to create a fund for the victims. Uh, India doesn't want $350 million. They consider that an insult. They want 10 times as much, $3.5 billion. By 1989, they settle for $470 million. Is the money coming from Union Carbide USA's Union coffers? Union Carbide USA, right. Um, what Union Carbide, the story that they promulgate is that this was not an industrial accident. It was actually a case of worker sabotage. Huh. The water that was introduced into the tank, according to the independent investigation conducted by Union Carbide USA, could not have leaked in or gotten into the tank by any other method than by someone purposely attaching a high-pressure water hose to an outside valve and pouring water into the MIC tank because of a because of feeling disgruntled by the by lack of having been promoted and whatever employee disgruntlement it seems usually a little inspires. unlikely because it's got to be somebody who both has that kind of just day labor access to stuff but also has the knowledge of the chemistry of what would really screw this up well there are plenty of those people okay um and the blame settles on a on a person by the name of ml verma there's a suspect yeah who is this disgruntled employee this. Who, uh, who during the, because the suggestion that the water was introduced by the, by the team who are clearing out a spraying elsewhere, clog 400 meters away yeah. or 400 feet away. Uh, everybody says, well, no, that's impossible. It couldn't have happened. It was, uh, it was uphill and around a corner. It was too you know, far and you couldn't have gotten a ton of water into this. Not enough to set off that reaction. No. Um, and there's evidence now, of course, all of this. Is, could have been retconned. Right. It's not a lot of transparency, probably, right? But there was a valve that uh, that a senior manager ordered replaced immediately after the event on this tank. Like, we need to go out and replace this broken valve that was the valve that would have, you know, that had a, um, had a coupling that you could have attached a water hose to the valve. I mean, today in the camera age, there'd be a more definitive answer to this. Right, right. But not in 1984. Over time, you know, various people that were on site were deposed in various courts. A lot of uh, employees kind of confirmed that, uh, that there were things that happened that couldn't have happened if it weren't intentional. Um, everything was fine right before the tea break. And then there was a shift change and there was a, so you know, suddenly there, it's catastrophic. Yeah. There was 10 minutes where nobody was mining the store. And then all of a sudden the pressure starts to spike in this tank and, and then it becomes uh, a runaway event. How is that possible that it could have just all happened at once? Um, but the, of course the Indian government doesn't want 
for a variety of reasons, that to be the story. They don't want it to be an in-house problem. It's oh, much, I, th- I thought they'd prefer it if there's a if there's one bad actor. It's much better, I think, from their standpoint, for the bad actor to be a U.S. company that conveniently is outside of their jurisdiction, right? You, right. you can't really— What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um, Warren Anderson, the CEO of Union Carbide, uh, is charged by Bhopal courts with manslaughter, but Bhopal courts don't rise up to the level, even within India, of having the power right. to indict an American. And the, Plus, he's president and CEO, right? This, yeah. this would be a little dicey in any legal system. And the U.S. won't extradite him for anything, but, you know, anyway. Uh, as late as 1999, there was an attempt to charge Union Carbide in U.S. courts with crimes against humanity. Oh, wow. And that bandied, you know, that bandied around in the courts until 2012 when it was dismissed. But in 2010, seven Indian, high-ranking Indian employees of Union Carbide India Limited were charged and convicted of death by, by negligence for their work, for their— They just happened to be on shift and did a crappy job. Their part in it. Um, uh, and they were almost all, they were all in their seventies by that point and were released on bail almost immediately after being walked to jail. There was a big payout to victims' families at some point you said like it. Well, the, the victims' families, um, did benefit from this enormous fund, uh, in the, in the final accounting, um, most people injured by the by the event were awarded twenty five thousand rupees. Yeah, uh, you're gonna are you gonna shock me when this gets converted? Yeah, that's it's not a lot of money. That's right? three hundred dollars. Oh man! Um, if you if a, a relative died, they got seven hundred and eighty dollars, and the average payout to families where multiple people died yeah. within the family was about $2,200. Hmm. So in the end, um, there was not a lot of justice. Who do you think got off easy? Do you have some take here? Union Carbide USA? Well, just... all the people that died that night and don't have to think about it anymore. Lol. Well, yeah. Too but, soon. But who is the... Uh... Well, nobody paid the price. the The thing is that the that uh, the union, I just want I just want a bad guy. They, you know, I grew up on westerns. They didn't know what to do with the remaining MIC in the immediate aftermath, and so they started up production of the pesticide again in the plant, like days later. Well, that's all all we can do is know, it, at least we can turn this into carborol. Yeah, we can't pump this out of here, so we might as well just fire up the plant. Maybe we should get that flare going again. It's what the victims would have wanted. Eventually, the plant was bought by Dow Chemicals. Um, but talk about a Superfund site. It is, to this day, polluting all the groundwater around there. It's a massive, massive... It's all uh, in the soil and everything. Toxic and... waste dump that is still... Part of the plant is still online and making stuff, or at least was until recently. And are there neighborhoods near nearby enough that there's probably still... Oh, yeah. Just kids eating, eating uh, toxic dirt? They had to burn or bury, I think, over 2,000 head of livestock in the aftermath. But they said everything else was safe to eat except for fish. Don't eat fish. I think all of that's 
oh, I'm sure it's all fine. And they're eating, everyone's eating the fish now again too. Um, but the, but the site is still there and still, um, maybe worse than ever. Do you think in India, this is Chernobyl? Like it's just, it's just yeah. our kind of blinkered Western view where we're like, how come nobody talks about Bhopal? Like they're still putting it on stamps and having anniversary, sad anniversary ceremonies. And yeah, it's still, I mean, there are a lot of, there, there's a lot of reckoning, uh, happening between India and the, and Europe and the West and their, and Britain. And this is not, not part of that conversation in India. Um, but as far as here in the United States, uh, I, I hadn't thought of it since 1987, probably until a person reminded me of it. And, um, you know, it might reappear as the topic of a, of a mini series because I was, I was just watching the Netflix movie white noise, which is about, uh, you know, as, as the, as the book and movie keeps saying a toxic airborne event of, of vague provenance. And, uh, DeLillo published that in early 85, I think just weeks after Bhopal, wow. but obviously just a quint, you know, it's a book he'd been writing about a, about a vague environmental threat slash national disaster for natural disaster for a year or two. It just happened to come out just weeks after Bhopal. Um, but you know, at least this is kind of the first kind of, uh, you know, creepy toxic cloud I've seen in a, mo- a, a movie since, I don't know, the fog or something. So what's, what's maybe the crazy, time is right for, for Bhopal discourse. This all happened in December of 1984 in uh, 1985. There was a massive gas leak at a union carbide plant in West Virginia that even then we didn't hear about. Of course, it didn't kill 3,500 people. But that might just be more accidents of location than anything else. I mean, it's just an, uh, an example that, that uh, pipes are rusting everywhere. The real villain here, corporate cost cutting. I think the real villain is rust. Rust. We hate rust. Also, MIC. And that concludes the Bhopal disaster. Entry 118.je2106, certificate number 52760, in the omnibus. Uh, This may be the first entry in the omnibus reference work that you're listening to. If so, you don't know that uh, the show's not over yet. It seems like it is, but there's actually going to be probably 10 more minutes of us doing who knows what. Hmm. Uh, Reminding you about the evils of social media, the toxic airborne event of the 21st century. I'm Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick. Jointly at Omnibus Project. Uh, there are futurelings gathering uh, on Facebook and elsewhere. Uh, find your community if you have. If you're yelling at the, if you were yelling at the speaker or the headphones at some point during this show, please go yell on Facebook. Look for the futurelings. You could email us things at at uh, theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Or send us physical items to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I think there was some letter or postcard I did not get to last time. And now, for the life of me, I can't find it. It's probably here somewhere. You read this Lunar New Year card? Mm-hmm. Happy Year of the Rabbit. Isn't that last year? Uh, no, it's this year. Oh, it is? Yeah. Maybe this is what I didn't read. A Lunar New Year card from a listener in Taiwan whose name begins with an R, ends with an A, and got scraped off by something. Or maybe a a ballpoint pen hit an oily spot? 
A ballpoint pen hit an oily spot. <laughs> that famous lyric. <laughs> Maybe it's Rebecca, who enjoyed uh, being mentioned in the Safety Coffin show. I hope not in a threatening way. Uh... And thinks maybe we should cover Taiwan more often. I'm not against that. We should cover Taiwan more often. Yeah. I don't think I would have to search very long to find a U- Union Carbide incident in Taiwan. Uh, I'm sure there have been plenty. Uh, actually, I have a Taiwanese topic in mind. I think people don't talk uh, enough. Like in the West, this is huge in Taiwan, but it's not widely known. Like what happened to the native Taiwanese when the Kuomintang moved in. It's, oh, right. It's a super interesting socio-political upheaval. But this person who wants us to talk more about Taiwan probably doesn't want to talk about Taiwan's patchy uh, history dealing with the indigenous people. They want to talk about the glories of... Well, she also wants to talk about the 1977 um, Skokie Nazi um, uh, demonstrations and legal battles. I hate Illinois Nazis. We all hate Illinois Nazis. Uh, That's so funny that that line kind of reads as a non sequitur now when it actually was a very topical reference. Oh, yeah, it was when, right it was right on the nose at when, the time. At the time people <laughs> wouldn't stop talking about Illinois Nazis. It'll it's probably relevant again. You just have to wait. Uh so if this was indeed the card we did not read last time, thank you, Rebecca. If I'm if I have read it twice, maybe we should just do a bit where I, I read this card every week on Omnibus. I've never seen it again. There there was a thread not very long ago uh where people were remarking that I was making the same joke Every time a certain episode number came up in our addenda shows that I had I had referred to the number and then made a like 420 joke or whatever, or like a 69. I don't remember what the joke was, but it's nice to know our listeners are keeping me honest. Like, hey, that's the third time you used that joke. People don't understand to what degree that kind of a joke, and I'm doing air quotes, yeah. is just some kind of reflexive thing yes. that you can't control. I may have told this story on Omnibus before, but um, my brother was in a car accident while running uh, some years ago. Wait a minute. He was in a car accident while running. I think you might have done this bit last time. Tricky. He was hit by a car while running. It's not that tricky. Oh, I see. Hit by a car while running. And uh, in the hospital, he kept getting, he kept, you know, short-term memories were having a hard time forming, which means he kept asking the same questions and he kept making the same joke to the doctor who was, you know, a little bit concerned that, you know, every five minutes he would reboot and be like, wait, where am I? And then he'd make the same joke again. What was the joke? Uh, I can't even remember. Will I ever play the violin again? Maybe that's, yeah, that's always right. a good one. Right. Doctor, it hurts when I do this. Yeah. Why would he shoot an elephant in his pajamas? Um, but basically all that just reveals that the human mind is always like that. We're always just, you know, a series of stimuli will push some level of a fluid or a neurotransmitter or an electric charge up to a certain point. And that's the point where I say, Nice, or right, or whatever the non-joke is. I cannot say the na- the number four twenty without being Polly Shore. I just can't do it. There's not that many funny numbers though. Sixty nine and four twenty. What are the other ones? There's not another one until eighty thousand and eighty five. What's What's funny about that? Got to type it into a calculator. Oh, boobs! Classic. What was I even doing? Oh, I uh, got the mail. Um, and uh, even if you have nothing to send us. Please send us virtual monies. Go to patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you are a uh, enjoyer, if you're a devotee mm-hmm. of, of omnibus culture. Yeah. Um, enjoy Matron. You're missing out. Uh, if you don't, even if you subscribe at even the lowest tier, you will immediately have access to how many addenda shows do we have on there? 30. 40. It's 40 now? 
Pretty darn close. Pushing 40 new shows. So if you're someone who thinks, wow, there's half as much Omnibus this year, I'm bummed. Lordy, you can, lordy, look you who's can, 40. You can immediately produce uh, 40 new weeks of Tuesday content just by uh, supporting the Patreon. And top-shelf Tuesday content, too. Uh, would you say the Addenda shows are more or less entertaining? They move faster. In many cases, fewer Central Indian deaths. Yep, but the the nice thing about about the addenda are that you get to argue with us. Yeah, that's right. You get to tell us that we were wrong, and then we will we take our licks. We we do. We we uh, we admit that we were wrong, as grown men ought to be able to do. We listen and learn. That's right. We do. Uh, Patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese. And hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.